Well, how do you incentivize people to value sussing out a difficult problem as opposed to just seeking an easy solution to it? And it's not about whose side is right. It's about the fact that neither side is having a conversation about what the compromise middle ground is that we can all live with in peace. Right before the crash of 2000, John Compton started working with me at a little telco in Los Angeles, and that's how we met. John and I became friends around role-playing games, and in general games. He had a design company at the time creating games, and so we'd debate and try out different game systems. He, as an avid reader, reads all the time, voraciously, and it, it was addictive, and I picked up the habit from him, and I'm always grateful to that. Prior to meeting John, he had already got his bachelor's degree in communications and music theory and composition from Humboldt State University. He also got his master of fine arts in music theory and composition. After we parted ways a few years of knowing each other, I moved out of L.A. He moved on to get a master's degree in economics, a master's degree in foreign defense policy, and a Ph.D. in international relations and formal methods. John has always been an amazing debater and conversationalist and a really kind person, as my memory serves, but definitely even more so now. John reached out to me after hearing a couple episodes of this podcast, and right around that same time, I had just read an amazing post of his, a eulogy about his father, which was quite touching. So here's my interview with John Compton. I'm at my home, and he's at his parents' home. Where is that in the world? It's in uh, Three Rivers, California. It's right below the uh, Sequoia National Park. All right, so it's maybe a mile or two below that. How long have you been there? Uh, I've been here since uh, end of October. Um, I came out because my dad was obviously getting ill, and my mom couldn't really, you know, handle it. Work was very accommodating, and uh, so I've been sort of working from here remotely, which, you know, I was doing a lot of in D.C. because that's... Uh, you know, everyone's teleworking right now, obviously. It's not a mystery, right? Yeah. So it wasn't really a big switch to come here to do it. Uh, I just probably put in less hours because I was busy handling details with my father. Yeah. And uh, he passed away uh, on Monday, and uh, it was uh, both stressful and relieving at the same time in sort of a macabre way, right? Because, you know, the way he was living at the end of his days was not a way to live. And it was very, very stressful. So now I move on to another part of our lives. Since you've been out since October, did you get some time to actually talk with him? Uh, I did. And it was kind of cathartic in a lot of ways because, you know, he and I haven't really had the best relationship over the years. And uh, he's always been difficult since uh, since I was in my late teens. And, you know, we were estranged for a lot of years. We didn't speak for years at a time at some some spaces in time. And, uh, you know, the, the last two months, he, when I think when he kind of realized, when he got not just a diagnosis, but sort of the the look from the doctor that said, look, you pretty much need to enjoy the view and, and enjoy your booze, because that's it's coming to an end. I think the sort of mortality dawned on him and he sort of opened up a little bit. And once he opened up a bit, we were able to have, I think, better conversations. He sort of let his guard down. And I think a lot of his life he had been suffering from um, 
I'm not a psychiatrist, right? So I can't really make a, a diagnosis in this respect, but I, I think he was uh, suffering from a certain degree of mental illness that, that was probably a borderline paranoia. And that came out in a lot of his behavior to uh, my mother and I and other people that he knew, especially later in life as it sort of ramped up. And I think, uh, I think when mortality sort of set in, he, I think he, he, he kept a lot of that for some people, but he let go of it with respect to me. Cause I think he just realized he had to trust somebody at the end. Mm. And, uh, once that happened, we were able to establish a rapport and, uh, and it was good because, you know, we, we were able to talk about things that we were never able to talk about before. Uh, just things that we'd done, experienced how we thought about things, uh, things that he and I had in common that, uh, you know, we never really considered a lot in conversations previously. He was always very adversarial with me. So, What's one of the things that you have in common or had in common with him? He and I uh, were, you know, let me find a way to articulate this. It's not going to sound self-serving. Um, <laughs> he and I have both had very successful careers, all right? And, and we were successful in our careers, not because so much that we were, um, I don't want to say we worked harder than people or were smarter than people or anything like that. We, I think we were successful. We were both successful because we were, we innovated differently. We thought differently about things. We had sort of a, um, a willingness to throw away basic concepts that other people would take for granted about how things work and start from root principles and reconstruct realities around that in order to find new paths forward. And he did that in his world, which was heavy construction and, you know, an example of that was uh, he has patents for um, seismic building construction that, about how steel could act as a hydraulic mechanism if it's encased, like in concrete, right? So you could compress it and it would act like a hydraulic if it was encased in concrete, and that would actually create, you know, lateral stability in buildings, etc. And that was not a concept that was thought or believed or understood widely, but it was something that he believed due to experiences he had in other places in his life that he brought to this industry. And, you know, I've done very similar things. So when I, when I went to Washington, D.C. Uh, and worked in the field that I'm in, um, a lot of my success there, you know, a lot, most of the people I work with, not all the people I worked with, have been doing that all their lives. They went to college, they went into government service and so forth. I came in in my 40s. And so it was kind of a, a rarish thing for someone who wasn't doing that all their lives to come in. And the, and the reason I was successful at that was because I brought a very different perspective to things um, and was in, could analyze projects that were, that were very complex uh, from perspectives that other people didn't have. And that had a lot to do with not just the experience I'd had in life outside of, of Washington, D.C., but also just because I have a willingness to just disregard very fundamental principles that people hold uh, about how reality works and start from very root root understandings. So um, it's like when I think about deterrence issues or things like that, I, I'm, I'm very willing to throw away concepts from, you know, real politic and Brody and, and all those guys and just say, look, let's, let's forget that for a minute. And let's, let's reconsider this problem from, from, from root principles and then generate a new theory of deterrence that actually is more appropriate to the kind of world we're in today. That's the, so that's the kind of thing that we had in common was that we didn't really look at the world the same way because we, 
we're fundamentally willing to dismiss what other people might hold as, and I, you know, I, I don't like to use the words other people, but just what common understandings of things might actually be, right? So that was sort of an approach that he and I had to life that, you know, we had in common. And in many respects, that approach held out in the way he and I viewed, you know, topics like religion or like politics, um, in the sense that we're, we are very quick to dismiss our own bullshit, <laughs> while at the same time dismissing everyone else's too. Um, and just trying to take a more pragmatic, realistic approach to just, you know, what the hell's really going on here and, and, and not approach it from a predetermined dogmatic perspective that forces us to think along certain pathways. Do you find that the qualities that separated your father out from the rest of the world that might have been some kind of mental illness, but do you find that there's something about you that also has that where you're slightly separated from people? Have you had challenges connecting with people in your life? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, again, this is always a, a conversation that's hard to have uh, in public spaces because it's easy to misinterpret what you're saying. I find it very difficult to have chit chat conversations with people because I find them astonishingly tedious. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, my dad suffered from that same problem. Uh, and I think the difference between he and I was that he was probably less tolerant of it than I am. And he probably had less respect for its place in civil society than I do. Right. So, so while I may find talking about the football game last night, ad nauseum with somebody to be immensely tedious, I'm still perfectly willing to engage in it because I recognize that there's a social interaction here that has to occur in order for me to have a sort of civil relationship with society. And in portions of my life, <laughs> particularly by ex-girlfriends, I've been accused of you know being somewhat unemotional about things. And it's not that I'm unemotional about things, it's that there's certain portions of my emotional experience that I don't experience directly. I experience them through an intellectual lens, right? It's like, oh, I have this feeling going on. Let's take a look at that. And it's like, it's like, it's not as visceral to me. It's not that I don't experience it. It's that it's something that becomes more of an intellectual curiosity for some other part of my brain, which is this interesting function of the human mind, right? That it's capable of doing these sorts of weird consciousness exercises if you're introspective enough. So my wife um, tutors a lot of uh, high school students and she, she, um, tutors them to pass the SAT and so forth. And so, you know, and for the most part, they're, you know, just average students, but once in a while she gets someone who is exceptionally bright. And often when she gets that exceptionally bright student, they have a lot of similar kinds of problems in terms of expressing self-confidence, sort of coming to terms with the fact that there is a difference between people who are exceptionally bright and people who are, are average and people who aren't. And the, the, the difficulty in that conversation is that coming to terms with the fact that you have, a, you know, they'll say like a high IQ, right? If you have a high IQ, the, the, the most difficult thing to internalize about that is that doesn't make you in any way ethically, morally, or, or, so societally more important or superior or different in any way. It simply is a different set of tools that you have as part of how you were constructed in the, the, the evolutionary pool of reproduction, right? 
And so the, the conversation I have with these exceptionally bright students often goes along the line of, you're going to find as you go through life that conversations with people are sometimes exceedingly tedious. Because the only experience you have is your own experience. You look around and you see the world from your own perspective. If you're brought up with you know, normal parents, I'd say your outlook is going to be one that I'm the average person. But as it turns out, you're not the average person. And you start to wonder at some point, well, how come... I see things, I understand things, I think nonlinearly, or I have these other attributes in the way I view the world that other people don't seem to have. Why is that happening? You'll make the mistake of saying, well, God, everyone's so stupid. <laughs> you know, everyone's just, God, why is everyone so damn dumb? And, and, and the thing is, is, it's not that. And when you go down that path, you, you start to become amazingly arrogant. And, and, and I'm guilty of having gone down that path, right? I, I, it's like I've, I've, I've looked around me and just thought, God, everyone's such a fucking moron. I just, and at some point in time, you have to step back from that and say, I'm making a huge mistake thinking that way, right? What it is, is that I have a different set of tools and I have a certain amount of gifts that I should be thankful for, but I should never think of myself as being somebody that's in any way fundamentally more important, more understanding, more ethically righteous, or any of those things. Because the thing is, is if you get over your own bullshit for a minute and you go out in the world and you actually talk to people and you, and you and, and instead of talking to them about the weather or the or the or the steelers or whatever the hell it is you're going to talk about and you talk about things that they know about right what you discover is that actually people are, are a lot smarter than you give them credit for but the thing is is they have understanding of the world that is encased in a certain perspective that is their own that you don't have and that there's a lot of value in that and so I've come to have a greater appreciation of concepts like the wisdom of the masses and things like that, because there is a certain amount of wisdom in that, that you don't necessarily experience if you're locked too much in your own world. And so that's one of the things that I think differentiated me from my father is that I don't think he ever quite made that, uh, that leap to recognize that there wasn't anything intrinsically better about him, um, in that respect. And so there was a certain arrogance about his life that, you know, where he really got confrontational with people that he just felt were intellectually inferior. And that was a real problem. You have to come to terms with the fact that people aren't the same. People are different. They all have different strengths and weaknesses. And there's not a moral value judgment to be made across those differences. While at the same time appreciating the gifts that you do have and trying to, to maximize them in a sense that benefits yourself, your family, and your society in a positive way. I have a tendency to just wish people were a little bit different. You know, I, mm -hmm. I have this idea like, well, education, of course, is a solution to us all being so separated in society. And then I see that people are just not into learning things anew like I am. Um, yeah. And it, t at some point, I feel I get into this place where I get a lot of. Uh, disappointment with humanity. I go, I almost like throw my hands up like, well, screw it. You know, people aren't going to spend the time to be better and be kinder to each other and to do the work necessary to change their own perspective and to learn where other people are coming from. All these skills that you need to actually function in a more collaborative way. I go, well, yeah, of course you need control and systems in place that manage people because you know, is democracy even going to work? Can I get into that dark spot? Yeah. And it's easy to do. You know, especially in, in the environment that we have now, especially the political environment, right? It's, it's very easy to fall into these spaces where you become very 
disturbed for you know humanity in with respect to the way it sort of it seems to be disintegrating but the what i found is that you know if you sit around and you watch cnn or fox news or whatever you're going to come away with a very disturbed picture of what's actually going on in the world around you but when you actually go out and speak with people right and look in their eyes and and have a conversation you find that well it's it's it really isn't quite as bad as that really seems uh, where where are these things happening that i'm not experiencing them directly and you find out that these things are are happening but they've always happened and they've happened in 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 places that because at one point in my life anyway we didn't have the 24-hour news cycle and so we didn't hear about all these things but so you so you lose a perspective of the actual scale that some of this disparity is actually happening now having said that that doesn't mean that i don't think we have a, a significant problem going on in society right now and i think that problem has a lot to do with the fact that we can't really have good conversations uh as much as we used to be able to so i, I give you a some examples of that, right? So have you ever heard of the intellectual dark web? Sure. And the guys involved in that, that whole movement. So when that started up, I was, I was really intrigued by it. And I listened to a lot of the discussions that they had. And one of the things I observed about the, that group of people who were involved in that, like, you know, uh, Eric and Brett Weinstein and, 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 uh, and uh, Jordan Peterson and those guys and Ben Shapiro, right? Is that, when they were having a conversation together and they were discussing an opposing viewpoint, a few things that you discovered were one, their positions weren't actually that far apart, which was fascinating. And two, as people, they were much more interesting to listen to in the conversation than they were as individuals. So I love listening to Ben Shapiro have a conversation with somebody. I can't stand listening to Ben Shapiro do a monologue on, on, on whatever the hell show that he runs. Right. And, mm -hmm. and I found that I had the exact same experience with the rest of them. You know, when, when Jordan Peterson is having a debate with, 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 uh, you know, the, the religious debates he had with, uh, uh, Sam Harris, those were fascinating. When I listened to him do a monologue, I, I, it's not as interesting. So even in the Weinsteins, the Weinsteins, the same way, very fascinating in conversations, very dull in monologue. Coming away from that, I'm just going, you know, the, the thing that we're lacking here in, in the broader space is that ability to have these conversations. Everyone's too engaged in the monologue. Uh, my, my Twitter spews, my, my, you know, posts that I'm going to put somewhere. There's a certain there's a certain narcissism that we're that we've um, facilitated and somewhat encouraged in a lot of the technology that we've made available to people. And that's not something I'm trying to say. Well, it's the technology company's fault. It's the, it's just you know, you, you, no one's going to not make money appealing to people's narcissism. That's just <laughs> that's just how people are wired. But the thing that we're not having are these long form interesting conversations where, you know, I'm going to put forth an idea, but my idea is going to be a lot more tenuous because I'm no longer just putting it out there without any immediate feedback. I'm putting it out to you where you're going to listen to it and you're going to say, ah, it's bullshit, John, and here's why. And then we can have a conversation and one of us might move a little bit or we might reconsider or strengthen our arguments and so forth. That's a very valuable thing to have. But if I don't have that process, if I'm sitting by myself in a room and I'm just blarbing out my ideas without any of that immediate feedback and without actually having to vet it through this sort of intellectual crucible of having someone intelligent actually respond to it. Uh, 
I find myself going down a rabbit hole that becomes less and less rational and, and everybody succumbs to that. Um, and so this is happening with the dark web, with the intellectual dark web guys, right? This is the, the less they had those conversations, the more their, their sort of points of view became less interesting because they became wrapped up in sort of their own worldview and they weren't being challenged as much. You know, it's like, I loved a lot of the stuff that Eric Weinstein used to come it's, up with. Oh, sorry about the delay. Yeah. It's almost like the ideas get calcified, right? They get hard and brittle right. um, as they don't engage the muscle of learning from people, bouncing ideas, keeping it flexible enough to keep learning and growing. Right. Um, definitely feel that way. What were you going to say about... What was I going to say? Oh, uh, so, so you know, Eric Weinstein had, had, this, had some really interesting economic ideas. Now, I'm, I'm not a self-described progressive like he is, except that when we talk about the defini- his definition of what progressivism is, I have to reconsider that point of view because, you know, from his definition, I kind of do fall into that a little bit. But I, I certainly wouldn't in the broader context of what a progressive is. And now I wouldn't describe myself as a conservative either. But the, the thing is, is he has these ideas of things like the uh, the embedded debt, ob- uh, the embedded growth obligation, right, which comes out of uh, um, Derek uh, DeSolo Price's work, which is, you know, it's a brilliant book. The interesting thing about that book, though, is you have to read it very carefully in order to come up with the with the ideas that, that, that Weinstein came from it, came up with from it. But they're very good ideas, this idea that exponential growth rates cannot continue in any kind of economic system. Well, that's a very profound thing to recognize, because then there's 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 a dependency upon technological innovation and other kinds of innovation in a society to allow you to have the new platforms and and ideas from which new wealth can be generated from that allows you to have this continued growth model. Well, that's a very profound idea. In these conversations that he's having with guys like Ben Shapiro and so forth, these ideas would get put forth and they get touched upon. But the problem was, is the conversation stopped before we really got into the nitty gritty of what the policies ought to be. Mm-hmm. So the, because the, the interesting thing about these conversations, is you find the, the difference between a guy like Ben Shapiro and Eric Weinstein, they're not as far apart as you would think they are. But where we never got to in those conversations is where the middle ground between those two positions might actually be. And that's what disappointed me about the intellectual dark web is because when those where those conversations were poised to begin, the conversation stopped. Those conversations normally, traditionally, I think, in American culture would emerge in debate regarding to legislation, right? You'd see that kind of debate occur. I mean, uh, maybe I'm being too optimistic and too blinded by (laughs) reality that maybe it's always been like this. But it feels to me like the right way for that to happen is Congress debates this. Um, They put up a bill, Senate debates it, they modify, ratify, they come up with a conclusion, and they vote upon it, right? So that you do get to some kind of middle ground. But what you do see in debate right now is that no one, that the tactic of debate at this point is never make a step back, never make a concession, fight, 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 which doesn't bring you to a middle ground, it brings you to stalemate. Sure. And, and, and the, the, the idea that I would, I would put to you on that is that the conversation that they had in the good old days, if you want to call it that, right, where those debates would happen in Congress didn't just happen in Congress. They happened in the broader context of society where there were, you know, rational conversations being had by people uh, in literature and in public media that existed at the time and so forth. Guys like William F. Buckley, who a lot of people might really disagree with, I disagreed with on a lot of things. He still had very intellectually deep conversations with people who opposed his point of view in which you could actually start to suss out 
right? Where these threads of that conversation would lead you in a sort of a congressional debate context. And the people in the Congress at the time were paying attention to those conversations. How did we lose that? Why don't we have that now? So my answer to that would be speculative, first of all. So I, I, because I, we're dealing with a, a, not a complicated problem, but a complex problem in which we see the properties of emergence and so forth, right? So it's hard, for, it's hard to discern causality in, 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 in that kind of level of complexity. But I would, I would suspect that it had to do with the convergence of a couple of things, one of which is the idea of cable television, which gave us 24-hour news cycle, which gave us the, the corporate motivation to derive some profit from the ability to have a 24-hour news cycle. Therefore, news has to be manufactured. You have to get viewership and so forth. And this, this sort of interfering process uh, gets you to a position where what you're doing is you're trying to appeal to the least common denominator. I mean, hell, you, you go to... Uh, you go to the front page of CNN or Fox or any other news source, and the and the headlines are written in a way that they're clickbait, right? They're not, you know, somebody blasts somebody else, and you read the actual conversation, and it's like, you know, they said, I kind of maybe mildly disagree with your position, right? That's what the actual context, right? <laughs> but the the headline has this histrionic kind of thing to get eyes to go look and click on that link and see what the hell this big cabothral is all about. I love that you use the cable news always on as a problem. The other thing that happened before is you'd have bits of news. You'd have a paper a day. You'd have a news a half an hour, an hour a day that you'd watch. And then the rest of the time, those things were up to you to think about right, right. and process and digest. And so all of a sudden you're engaging your own mind. I mean, not even intentionally necessarily, but you're just doing that. So then you run into somebody and you're like, I saw this thing on the news and I'm still thinking about this because you're like looking for that extra bit of thought yep. around it. You want to f find out more and you own part of that decision making process when it's fed to you all the time, if you don't have the break, then you don't ever put your mind on it. You just see what the next thing is. You see what the next thing right. is. You see what the next thing is. You're doing the doom scrolling all the time, not allowing you to process and use your own mind. Yeah. I mean, of course, this is all conjecture, right? We don't really know why society has changed in this way. I mean, has society really changed? Was it different before? Um, yeah, I mean, the answer to that is yes, uh, but people haven't changed. I don't believe that people today are any more narcissistic than they were 50 years ago, right? But what I do think is that people today uh, are products of an environment that has, one, uh, encouraged and fed upon that narcissism, which has created a, a sort of a, what I would consider to be a fairly narcissistic kind of culture in the sense that, you know, I don't have Twitter, right? And the reason that I don't have Twitter is because I'm not even slightly interested in the least imaginative important thing that anyone has to say at any given moment of the day. I'm not interested in a one sentence bite of what someone thinks about some event because there's not going to be any intellectual depth in it because it just doesn't have the, the breadth to express something like that. So if I start succumbing to the idea that I'm, that's what I'm going to consume on a regular basis, then, then it's very difficult for my level of thinking about a problem to ever rise above the length of a sound bite. And that's, well, that's kind of a disaster in a societal sense. And it's not about whose side is right. It's about the fact that neither side is having a conversation about what the compromised middle ground is that we can all live with in peace. Not even thinking about what the, the problem is, really. Exactly. You know, a lot of this conversation revolves around politics, right? Because we've stratified ourselves, we've made everything very political, and we've sort of 
attached our our value structure and our moral system to the political perspective that we want to espouse publicly. And it becomes a sort of internal feedback loop. And what I've come to the conclusion is that there really is no difference between politics and religion. They're exactly the same thing. It's not about the content. It's about the belief. So if I come to that conclusion, then I have to ask myself, well, if I'm an atheist with respect to religion, what does it mean if I'm an atheist with respect to politics? And then that's not sort of a functional question as it is a fundamental philosophical question, which is to say, I'm an atheist with respect to religion because I haven't subscribed to a belief system. That doesn't mean I don't recognize the value of belief systems. It means I'm not subscribing to one and I reject them for very specific reasons. If I'm looking at politics and I'm going to describe myself as an atheist intellectually because it's, it's not about the content, it's about the belief. And I look at politics and I say, well, what does it mean to be an atheist with respect to politics? Mm -hmm. Well, if I'm going to label myself as a Republican or a conservative or a Democrat or a progressive or something like that, I'm automatically putting myself into a constrained intellectual box that is going to be difficult in the sense that once I constrain myself that way in a public statement, what I've done is I've taken a side rather than had a conversation. You know, if I say I'm a libertarian, you're going to automatically think, well, I want to bring back the gold standard. Right. I'm actually personally, I view the world from kind of a libertarian sort of standpoint. But I also think that bringing back the gold standard is, is the idea of an economic illiterate. Yes. Once you start thinking of yourself in that way, then you, then you put yourself in an intellectual box that's going to that's gonna, that's gonna force you into an echo chamber that's probably not a good idea to be in if you want to have a rational conversation about society. You're also going to be in a place where, I mean, what you're basically doing is you're labeling yourself a certain way, ready for a battle, right? You're just taking right. two conceptual ideas of what, you know, like a conservative and a liberal or whatever, and, they, and you're just automatically creating that barrier yep. right off the bat. I'm just, I'm curious if, one of the things I felt has been um, a leading factor of this, I, I agree with you, the cable news and now the internet's very much the same type of thing, not getting people enough time to think. I love that idea, and I hadn't really thought of it that way before, so thank you for that. The other thing I've thought about for a long time is has to do with a two-party system that we have in this country because of the way our voting system works, and that a shift in our voting system, a run-up, run-down, eh, whatever it's called, but basically uh, voting for the top three would give you more debate and more argument because you wouldn't lean into those categories as easily. What do you think about that? Interestingly enough, I had a lot of those kinds of conversations when I was getting my doctorate, right, because I was in a political science department, and there was a lot of that kind of conversation going on. You know, my response to that is is that the only thing I can do is look at how other countries do actually do that function relative to ours. I can't honestly say that if I look at the way other countries function that have a system like that, that the outcomes are really any better or worse than, than ours are. Um, as a guy with a PhD in political science, and this is you know part of the conversation you were having with, I, God, I can't remember the guys that I watched with you the other night, but it was a very good conversation. Um, the thing that you that if you come away with a PhD, and the the one thing that you haven't learned after having gotten the PhD is that what you really know is almost absolutely nothing, right? Okay. That. If I'm going to, you know, express an idea about this, it's 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 highly speculative, right? And 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 I'm as much an authority on it as probably anybody else ought to be. So what I will say is that, in my opinion, 
And based upon my understanding and reading and study of other of, of other government mechanisms, I want to start up front that I actually wasn't a comparative government person in speciality. But when you have that multi-party system like that, uh, I think what happens is you create a, a political echo chamber that actually diminishes your ability to have compromise solutions in the middle. Mm. That seems contradictory. But the thing is, is, you know, we look at the American landscape and we have an idea of a radical left, a moderate left, a moderate right, and a radical right. And most of us don't really like the radical right or the radical left, right? Most of us tend to sort of function somewhere in, in, in this reality here. But the base of both of the parties, unfortunately, rides out here in these peripheries. And the idea that we have two parties allows us to actually have a moderation, right, of the worst tendencies that would exist in the two halves. But if we say we're going to have a multi-party system, well, what we then will have is a sort of moderate set of somewhat distinct ideas. And then these very radical sets of parties that are going to now become actual players in the thing. And, 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 and instead of moderating these radical ideas, they legitimize these radical ideas. And that's I don't, I, and so I don't really think that that's a place that we want to go because you can end up with, what happens is, is any system is susceptible to certain kinds of shocks, right? There's certain kind of calamities that happen or shocks that exist and so forth where bad things happen as a result of those system shocks. And every, every system has those vulnerabilities. And so, uh, and, and a prime example of that, of course, is interwar Germany, right? So you had the Weimar Republic that suffered these sets of shocks that allowed somebody like Hitler to go into power, right? That, that was a, a result of certain systemic shocks and systemic properties that, you know, were grossly unfortunate, but, but happened to have to do with the fact that there weren't moderating effects in place that would, that would moderate that kind of outcome. Um, Mm. So the way I think about your question is, is like, yeah, there's something to be said for the sort of the multi-party idea in the sense that we might have better conversations in the public forum, but I don't see evidence for that. But I do fear that by doing that, we will actually remove the moderation of the more radical elements that exist within either side of these debates, right? Because I, I don't want to see a white supremacist party and i don't want to see an american communist party i don't want to see those things i want to see those things moderated by republican and democrat <laughs> i i just i guess i would assume that the white supremacist party wouldn't get any votes or they'd get enough votes not to actually matter i mean in a parliamentary system of course they do get officers um in a situation where we keep very much the same structure of government that we do have the same congress count in the same senate house there might be a few congress people that are a little bit fringe like a white supremacist sure. group if they have enough people in a region uh they can get that vote but most of the time that wouldn't actually happen because they're actually dispersed these these fringe sides are a little more dispersed and wouldn't actually get enough votes to actually get people in office. That was my thought process of it. I get your saying about a shock to the system and having other side effects, and it is you never really want to 
test something in large, especially in a government light size, because you might have a catastrophe and a change. And we have some st- some stability, um, though maybe it doesn't feel like that right now. Are there examples right now of um, more democratic structures, but uh, but not with a two party system enforced by you know because of the voting system that they're using? Yeah, it, you're getting me into areas that my expertise starts to dwindle. Um, I would say that, you know, maybe the parliamentary system in the UK might be an example of something like that. Uh, but I don't want to speculate on that because I don't, you know, I don't know, honestly. Well, you totally brought up what my guest Ben Jaffe the other day said with the Dunbar curve, by the way, was what you were looking right. for. The Dunbar curve, this idea that the, the more you know about something, the less, the more you realize you don't know anything. Right. Absolutely true. And I think it's really wise to go, you know, that's not really my expertise. Totally yeah. valid. John, I, we started with talking about your father's passing and your experience and learning a bit about what other things have you learned about yourself and your father's passing? <laughs> huh. You know, I, I might be a little bit too close to the to the event to to have introspected on that well enough to articulate. Um, well, maybe maybe we talk about that subject in a year from now or so. Yeah, <laughs> after you've had a chance to process it. I I I think I might be both stronger and weaker than mm-hmm. I thought I was. How, how can I articulate that in a in a in an understandable fashion? Right? There's. You know, I think there's going to be a, a, I think I'm going to have a greater sensitivity to things, right? So, you know, when I wrote that eulogy I wrote about my father, um, you know, I mentioned in there the activities, you know, the conversation my wife had with him, right? Well, I don't think I ever really appreciated how important my wife's intervention in that at the time was until I was here having conversations with him and I was able to connect those dots, right? So in a, in a, in a, in a real sense, I think it's given me, um, a better emotional connection in, in some ways to, to my family and my wife um, in the sense that, you know, I've recognized uh, her contribution to the sort of the rejuvenation of my relationship with my father, which I wouldn't have recognized prior to that. Uh, so that's, that's something I've learned. And I'm, and so I'm, I'm trying to make myself more sensitive to the contributions that other people have with respect to my life than, than, you know, than I would have otherwise. So that's, and that's, I think that's a strength, not a, that, you know, that, that would describe something I think that's strengthened me in, 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 in many respects. And, you know, the, the, the weakened part is that I find that I am susceptible to, um, I, you know, getting angry about stupid things. Right. Um, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, I kind of knew I had that tendency before, but now I'm, I'm, I'm actually more sensitive to it where it's like, you know, I think a month ago I probably would have been a lot less, uh, tolerant of listening to someone's problems, right? Whereas now I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to listen to this and I'm going to try to internalize this. And, 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 and I'm finding that while I've recognized that that's an important transition for me to start making, I'm finding it intensely difficult to do. That's sort of a an internal struggle that is that is now resulted from this thing that 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 I'm going to have to work on. Yeah, it sounds like you for a long time understood that having a personal connection with people, or at least listening to their stories, even if it's just about the football game, is an important social thing to do. Um, and that you know your father and you have that issue around not wanting to necessarily, but you re- realized it was important. But you're saying still, even though you've realized that, there's even a deeper level to listen to people. Yeah, that you need to do. Yes. Um, 
you know, before I intellectually realized it, right, that there was a, that there, there are actually other people out there and that they actually do matter and they actually do have an impact in, in my life and they actually do have intrinsic moral ethical value, right? <laughs> so that's, and, 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 and that sounds obvious to, to a lot of people, but it really isn't because a lot of people go about their lives thinking that they have that and they actually don't. And so trying to internalize the idea that, you know, yes, I'm going to actually make the intellectual and emotional effort to connect on a, on a, on a level that creates value to me, to them, and therefore to others. It's a, it's kind of a deeper sort of thing to, to think about. Um, but it's substantially harder than you might think it is right? Because you live in your own world. There's, there's no escaping that you, you, you're, you're in your own head. There's, there's, there's no way out of that particular paradigm. And, and, and because I can't really directly experience what another person's consciousness is like, um, you know, I can only try to perceive the phenomena of it and derive some truth out of it for myself. Uh, that allows me to to rationally go forward in the world and and not be a jackass. <laughs> when I read your father's post and then kind of, I think I said something there or something. And then you said, "Oh, I just listened to this your podcast." I, you and I have a relationship that's twenty years old, right? We knew each other in our twenties. Um, worked in tech together in LA, and um, and game together mm-hmm. and hung out and like we're friends, close friends. I mean. And the, the John I have in my mind is stuck there, right? It's the same person. And of course, you and I are totally different yeah. people. We have kids. We have families. We've moved. We've done, you've got a PhD. I mean, we've totally transformed and changed. So when I, and, and I, you know, put, put this label on it, like you work in D.C., you work for the government. I know you're kind of um, in like military strategic threat planning stuff. I don't know a lot about it. Uh, partially, intentionally, I think that. There's going to be some secrecy there, but I, I would love to get into that. Sure. But the thing I'm thinking about right now is that with all of that idea of who you were, um, you say you listened to this podcast. I think it was my, the one with my sister the, about connection, and it moved you. I'm like, wait, who is this guy? <laughs> and then I read this thing about your father. I'm like, this is not the John that I remember in, in you know, 20 years ago. Well, I'm not that. I'm not that person. I mean, I don't actually, you know, the John that I knew not even 20 years ago, but say 40 years ago or 35 years ago, right? The John I was in college at Humboldt State back in the 80s, that guy was a jackass, right? I mean, he was an asshole. There's no way around that. He, that's what he was, right? He was a very smart guy. He's very capable and, and, and so forth. But, but, you know, he treated people like tissue paper, right? I mean, just that was who that guy was. And, you know, and so there's, you know, the, and, 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 you know, I paid a heavy price for that, right? I didn't go into the details of that, but there are events that occurred in my life with relationships that I had with, with people that, 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 that tended, you know, that turned tragic or problematic. They really had a huge effect on, on, on me. And, and I suffered from a tremendous amount of depression for a long time that I had to, to sort of work my way out of and, uh, and, and sort of self-esteem issues that resulted from all that. And you, you spent a lot of time being introspective about these things. And when you come out the other end of it, and in fact, when you and I met, I was, I was actually just starting to go through some of that process. Um, you know, when I met you and we worked at the company in, in LA, you know, I was in a, in a, in a state at that time where I was really trying to reinvent who I was and, and what my role in the world was. And uh, I wasn't really anywhere 
near the end of the journey at that time. Uh, I'm still not, but I, um, I think I'm farther down the path. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of vestiges of the old John uh, then that still existed that, that, are, that are, you know, probably less. You, know, they, you never quite get rid of who you are, right? There's still a... <laughs> I wouldn't dismiss the person that you were then that I knew and, and liked and was a friend as, a, as an asshole that, you know, was mean and used people's tissue paper. I don't think that at all. Oh, that was about five um, years earlier. <laughs> I get that the idea, that, you know, in contrast to who you are now. Yeah. But at that time... I do remember, you know, you, you definitely liked the intellectual debate and to find out where people were intellectually not as strong as you. Um, there was definitely that going on. That's a quality that I, I tend to like people like that, that are kind of completely in the moment engaged. I think gaming and strategic strategy games and th- things like that, we did a lot of role-playing sure. kind of stuff then and, and custom games that you were making at that time. And that kind of engagement, that intell- highly intellectual engagement, there's something very compelling about that, I think, at, in your 20s and maybe early 30s and in your teens, that it's completely encompassing. You build a nice little box. You know, it's, I think it's even a stat, uh, uh, the magic circle, whatever, in a game where everything inside this area is the discussion we're having. Everything else is unimportant. That really constrained way and then figuring out the system really well. That's fascinating and interesting. And it, it's odd and frustrating at some level that even if you're good at that as you look at the broader world you realize oh there's not a boundary you can't do that there's too many variables um i think that's one of the things that is even maybe brings in depression like where i'm coming from of like i don't know how to solve the world i don't know how to help people and in your situation you went through some depression um it it definitely feels like that's a, a turning point where you start realizing these fun games do not map to human interaction for example yeah, so that's an interesting point. Um, and as it turns out, I do have a lot to say about that subject. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that I do in as part of my uh, work in, in D.C. <laughs> is that I am considered to be somewhat of a expert on uh, wargaming, right? And not wargaming in the sense that I went and bought an Avalon Hill game, but wargaming in the sense that, yeah, I conduct wargames for military people at the Department of Defense. That's one of the things I do. And one of the challenges I had when I went to D.C., and this is, you know, sort of the lucky niche, as my dad called it, that I actually developed there, was to say, look, there is an actual epistemology to be discovered about how gaming actually functions. It's not like I brought Wargaming to D.C. They were doing war games forever there. That's, That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there was a lack of an epistemology about how war games actually sat in the analytical uh, um, effort that went on, broadly speaking, thinking about conflicts and so forth in the world. And my experience as a, as a, as a gamer with you and, and, and other people in my life that I, that I was able to bring there actually helped me a great deal in developing that epistemological understanding. Um, so I give you an example of it is, is, you know we're we're aware of we're aware of the of the the reasoning concepts of uh, induction and deduction, right? But there's a third one called abduction, right? And the, and the and the abductive process is is one that's that's not necessarily um, uh, codified with respect to how we how we go about it. So for example, um, if if you know 
I have two pieces of data in the world that I that I observe. There's a box on a table that paper appears in, and there's a bell on a door that rings, and I find that there's a correlation between paper appearing in the box and bell on the door ringing. Okay. And so I'm going to conduct an experiment. I'm going to say, huh, well, okay, so if I go ring the bell, does paper appear in that box? Well, it doesn't. If I go throw paper in that box, does the bell ring? Uh, no, it doesn't. But yet there is this correlation between the two things. So there's some underlying system going on there, right? So now I'm going to think about it. And then I think, well, okay, well, what is that paper in the box? What if it's a store of value? And what does that bell actually represent? Well, what if that bell is actually representing a potential transaction? Huh. Well, if those two things are true, then what I should be able to observe, observe in that environment is the existence of some kind of commodity that is being exchanged for those pieces of paper, and that that exchange likely happens sometime in the proximity of when that bell rings. And that brings me to the idea, well, okay, let's go conduct an experiment and walk around in the room and say, oh, look, there's leather handbags. Uh, Hmm. All right. There's a commodity here. So the thing is, is what I've done is, is, is I've said, I've gone from, I have some data and I conduct an experiment. So I've done an inductive process to get me to the point where I'm going to think about this thing for a bit. And I'm going to take some guesses about what might, what might actually be being represented by this data and this experiment, and then go back into the environment and conduct an experiment to see if I can gather more data. So the experiment to gather more data is that deductive process. The inductive process was the part, or the sort of the abductive process was the part where I sat and kind of thought about it, right? Well, there's no, there's no, uh, prescribed technique for thinking about things, right? You just think about them and you have an idea and you go forth and do it. So when we're, when we're dealing with something in the physical reality, right, there, there's no need to have uh, a formal abductive process because we immediately have at hand the ability to observe and to experiment. Um, and that's true of anything in reality and any system in reality that you want to go observe, okay? So, but when we talk about a future conflict, a potential future conflict, I'm now trying to make pred predictions about something that I can't observe, I can't experiment on, and I can't collect data, right? Because it's something that hasn't happened, hasn't happened yet, okay? So, so what ends up happening then is I, is I create simulations and models and things of that nature that allow me to sort of generate experimental data and conduct experiments, okay? But the abductive process involved in that has to be more formal. It can't just be guys sitting in a room. It has to be more formal. That abductive process in which you're trying to sort of prescribe what that future environment may actually look like and what that what that conflict may actually evolve into and the technologies that you will have available and how you will utilize those technologies in that conflict and what the basis for that conflict is, whether it's an economic issue or some other kind of thing, et cetera, and who the forces are and so forth. That's all speculative. And so that speculation can't just be a couple of guys with gray beards sitting in a room pontificating about their their magnificent understanding of how the future environment is going to work is bullshit, right? There has to be a more formal process of doing, conducting that abductive reasoning element. And so this is where the gaming comes in, right? The, the idea is that I'm not just 
going to sit around in a room talking about it. I'm going to conduct games in which I'm going to simulate the environment as best as I can about the physical realities that I can actually examine the terrain, the hardware, the, 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 the prob kill probabilities, all these other things, right? I'm going to try to model those as accurately as I can, but I'm going to put the decision-making process under the constraint of having to achieve success under those conditions against a thinking, adapting adversary. And in doing that process, what I'm going to discover is not how to win, what I'm going to discover is that there is a trade space that exists between what an adversary can do and what I can do. And it gives me an understanding of what that trade space looks like so that if I'm actually into the event, I can consider, okay, if there's a set of if thens, I have a much better capability to understand what the what that trade space actually is and how I should behave under these conditions than I would have otherwise. And so what I'm doing with with war games is I'm formalizing the abductive process. And of course, that has implications for how I'm going to design and construct and do a war game and how I'm going to link it to the other more inductive deductive processes that are involved with modeling and simulation and, and, and that whole thing. And of course, the, the challenge is, is that you can't do any of those things unless you have a solid grounding and understanding across the entire sphere of those things. And so the thing that I brought to Washington, D.C. with me was that I had a doctorate in formal methods, formal mathematical methods, modeling, simulation and a deep background in gaming with guys like you and and and, and anderson and the, all the other cr crew that we knew right and and that allowed me to sort of concoct this whole formal idea of how you do abductive reasoning processes using these tools and now we can get somewhere about how we can formalize right how to do that process that's you know that was kind of the neat thing that i brought <laughs> when i went to dc that you know People like that are kind of unicorns. There, there aren't really a lot of people who have, and, and so that's a large part of what I do, Lyle. Is a, that is awesome. That the description you have of it. I, thank you sure. for that. You know, I'm an I'm an analyst, but but the bulk of what I do isn't sitting around running models and so forth. I actually have problem sets that I'm trying to work through. Right? I don't I don't I'm not the guy who says go run this model. I'm the guy who says. Compton, we're trying to figure out if we have this environment and we have this adversary and we're at this time frame, how do we function successfully in that? Oh, okay, well, that's, that's, a, that's, a wicked, that's a wicked complex problem that I have to apply a lot of tools to. And so what I do is I go bring forces together to try to run through, you know, in the time frame that I have to try to come at some kind of reasonable understanding of what that system state might actually be and, 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 and therefore inform some rational decision making about you know, what we should buy, what we should program for, uh, et cetera. One of the things I was thinking when you were talking about how you've noticed the similarities between your father and you on how you engage with people and how you got to a situation where you were able to still engage with them because you understood that it was important through experience with people, I'm assuming, and, and turning from an asshole to a, a good person. Um, <laughs> I, it sounds like the strategy you've had is kind of game-like. It sounds like, oh... I've got to talk to them about the football game because this will bond an experience. So it's like an intellectual thing you're doing, which sounds kind of like a game. Huh, I never really thought of it like that before. Um, I, I do believe that someone who does a lot of gaming, that the process of doing that regularly actually does have a significant effect on how you uh, moderate and, um, and, and 
put forth your behavior into the world. And it, and it does probably make you more strategic, even if you don't realize that that's what you're doing. And so in the, in the, in respect to your question, I think, I don't think I would realize that I was doing something like that, but I don't think your description is probably inaccurate. Um, you know, it, it was, it was sort of a, you know, it's just fundamental root principles again, right? Thinking about, you read Dune, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So have you seen Villeneuve's, Villeneuve's new, new movie? Film? I have not seen it yet. Yeah. No. It's it's pretty good. Um, but uh, you you remember in Dune, there's this, in the beginning of the book, there's this part where, where Paul puts his hand in the box, right? And what's in the box? Well, it's pain. Sure. Right. And, and, and the whole, the whole test of that is, is, you know, we're trying to separate you from, you know, are you a human or are you an animal? Right. And the, and the context was that if you're an animal, you chew your arm off to get out of the box. Or if you're human, you endure the pain so that you can remove a threat to your species. Right. So there's, there's something, while I, I find that the sort of the brutality of that example to be, you know, maybe not as articulate as it ought to, as I think it ought to be, I also think that there's a lot of very interesting wisdom in that sense because, you know, one of the things I think that sets human beings apart from um, the rest of nature is, is, is the fundamental difference between survival and surviving on your own terms. Mm. If I'm just thinking about survival, I'm not really having an ethical conversation with myself. I'm not having a moral behavior or, or a reason to put a lot of stock in a uh, sort of an emotive uh, em empathy part of my of my being, right? Other than just my most immediate family familial concerns or clan concerns, right? So that's that's the survival mode. But the the distinction then becomes: well, I, at some point in time, I want to survive on my own terms, right? Because because survival from that perspective, life just sucks, right? Life there's, there's, you may be able to observe an immense amount of beauty in the world, but as soon as you look behind the curtain, you see the Fox eating the squirrel and, 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 and it's like, you know, life is consuming life. And, you know, you and I had conversations a long time ago about, you know, uh, omnivore versus vegetarian. I remember you used to be a vegetarian, I think maybe you still are. And, and I and, did, I'm not anymore. You know, and, and I'm, you know, carnivore, supreme but the, the 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 thing is is to me i don't draw a distinction between an ethical moral distinction between meat versus vegetables because it's all life to me i don't i don't think that there's a, a an ethical distinction between an animal that walks around and a plant that grows in the dirt i think there that it's still life and so you still have to overcome or frankly ignore the sort of the, the the moral ethical dilemma of the fact that if you want to survive, you have to go kill something, right? Whether it's an animal or a plant, that th that is just part of the calamity of existing, right? And the moment you are able to sort of abstractly consider your place in the world from that perspective, you have to start making making um, uh, exceptions for the fact that you know if I'm going to survive on my own terms and I'm going to do it in a way that just isn't completely miserable. I'm, I'm going to have to make certain uh, accommodations for the fact that there's aspects of life that are just this way, right? This is just part of the deal. Um, and so when we start thinking then again in terms of, of what it means to have life on you know, survival on its own terms, then we can start having moral, ethical, you know, um, uh, conversations about well what does that mean and at some point in the in the 
in the development of of human society, right? Uh, someone happened to realize that well, if if I can accomplish some amount of surplus within my large clan structure by farming or something like that, and that surplus allows me to develop things that are are useful to survival on my own terms, but that I wouldn't do if I was merely concerned with survival, then the next step is to think that there may be something scalable in that, that if I can unite more clans and I can create more surplus and I can free more minds to think about these different kinds of things and allow people to generate, you know, it's like, oh, it turns out that if I, you know, you know, have more people sharpening bows for arrows or sharpening arrows for bows and things that we can actually, you know, increase our consumption of meat products. And then we don't have to hunt as much. And, you know, whatever the hell the thing is, that starts to sort of multiply out into the environment. And then you end up with, you know, guys like Sargon the Great in, you know, Samaria, who, you know, goes out and unites several different, you know, early civilization cities into a larger empire that allows them to create art and literature and all these things. And you, and, 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 and then you have to again, come to terms with the fact that surviving means you have to kill things. That sucks. It's a calamity of survival. Well, I've often said that all history is the study of assholes, right? Because when you look at the great figures of history, it's not like there's anything admirable about them in terms of the things that they did. Right. It's like, you know, Sargon, the great, you know, slaughtered thousands, how many thousands of people in order to create that empire. Yet at the same time, cuneiform writing and art and literature and all these things started to emerge under those conditions. And so there's this, there's this sort of trade-off about human organization in societies that, that is fundamentally disturbing. And those trade-offs that, that, start to occur in order to maximize the artistic, creative, useful part and minimize the destructive, uh, conquering asshole part, right? <laughs> you have to start being able to have rational conversations, right? You have to have people in your society who are, are capable of self-governance in a rational, moral, ethical sense um, that, you know, doesn't preclude the fact that there are just things in life that you have to do to get on. So, so you know, and, and I, I, you know, I, I, what was your friend's name again that you, that I listened to? I, uh, I, ben. Ben. We're talking about perception. Yeah. So one of the things at the end of your conversation struck me as interesting is you were talking about incentivizing ethical behavior through economic system and then you sort of made a you both kind of made a cast off remark about capitalism being sort of like the the fundamental problem in all of this and uh, yeah and i think let me let me just just let me couch that a little sure. bit we've done a lot of discussions about problems in technology around social media and and yeah. we keep coming to this problem that the reason why facebook does such a bad job is its incentives it's capital it has to capitalistically succeed and the way it's done that is a certain choice of its capital and it's led to really bad things. So it's more like what's I don't I don't think we have a better solution. But oh wait, go ahead. What was your thought? Yeah, no, I don't fundamentally disagree with 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 that. Um, what my thought on that is is ultimately all of these things boil down to the choices of individual people. 
it can't be that the people in Google or Netflix or any of these things are, are just blissfully unaware of the destruction that these things are doing in society, right? So they are making a choice. And whether or not capitalism incentivizes that choice or not, I think is probably beside the point. Because the simple fact of the matter is, is that life incentivizes you to do unsavory things. But it's the fact that we have a moral ethical construct in our consciousness that backs us away from doing those morally unethical things and trying to strive to have a useful society. Now, the thing is, is you have to realize that human nature is such that when given the chance to do evil and have it be socially acceptable, we'll more times than not absolutely do it. And there's all kinds of experiments that, 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 that point this out. There's the, 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 the shock experiment they did where they had the, the, you know, if the guy doesn't behave in a certain way, you're supposed to administer the shock and it's okay. He's a voluntary, you know, and they conducted that experiment. The guy was an actor, right? But they found that there were some people just hundred volts, you know, and, and, and it just, and, but there were others who quit along the way. I wasn't sure if that experiment was reproducible, but go on. I, I definitely understand the idea that if you put into a structure that it's acceptable to do a thing, you can definitely do things that you wouldn't do without that structure around you. Mm-hmm. Well, it, so that experiment is only reproducible with people who aren't aware that that experiment has already occurred, right? I can't reproduce that experiment because everyone knows the experiment, right? They already know the gig, right? So it's not like I can, you know, I had, I'd have to find a bunch of people who are completely ignorant of it to repeat that experiment. And that's why those experiments become so, because it's published, right? Everyone knows now, right? So that's why experiments like that are, are exceedingly difficult to, to, to repeat. And then there's the, is it the Stanford prison experiment? Is that what that one was called where they had people behaving in certain yep. ways? In the, and, and that experiment has been repeated in various of, of uh, instantiations and in different ways. And it, it, it tends to be, you know, a pretty, pretty profound human trait that when, if we find ourselves in a, in a, in a, a social uh, structure that encourages us to behave in a, in a way and we gain our approval in that social structure from behaving that way, nine times out of ten, we'll behave in that way. And of course that makes sense. We're social creatures, right? Most right. human beings don't want to go take a sword to somebody else, right? But if an army is right. marching and you know your family is supported and everybody around you is doing it, that's how battle happens, right? You, human condition right. does support structure of society making the individual do something or the individual choosing to be part of the society has to, means they have to follow certain things. If we didn't right. have that, we wouldn't be the same kind of uh, beings. You know, exactly. You, you talk, though, about survival um, versus survival on your own terms. And the thing that's really interesting is that it's true that even though, you know, employees at Facebook are you know, aware of the problems, want it to be better, are good people, all of those things, and they they are employed by the company, right? And because of that, the choice of on your own terms, that's where the dichotomy happens. Do you stop participating? Do you try to change it? And I think that's where like these discussions are coming from is this idea like we should be able to make this better, right? We don't want to tear down the systems we have because they're pretty good. And even if we did, I don't think we, I think it'd be worse for us or even very hard to do. Right. And and so, you know, going back to, you know, our, my favorite author, Frank Herbert, right? One of the things that he said is that absolute power does not corrupt. It attracts the corruptible. Okay. So there's, there's a, there's a, there's a thing to be said for the idea of, of capitalism versus corporatism and what those two things, what those two things distinguish 
means, right? Is that there's one thing to have a, to form a corporation in order to conduct an activity in society that is useful and beneficial, you know. And there's another thing to construct a corporation that's only purpose for existing is essentially to rape and pillage, right, <laughs> out of society that maximizes, you know, society. And one is usually run by by psychopaths or sociopaths, and the other is run by people who are genuine entrepreneurs who are trying to do something, you know, meaningful for their lives and for their society. And both of them coexist under the rubric of capitalism, right? So the, the problem is not one of of capitalism the problem is one of ethical moral behavior of people who have made choices that probably aren't the best choices for them to have made now going along those lines you know i work in in the federal government i work in the department of defense i see a lot of stuff that i don't agree with and don't like right and there's been a lot of times when i would have liked to have taken taken a moral ethical stand about something that i disagreed with except for the fact that i have a mortgage and two kids right <laughs> So, and I'm not 30 years old anymore. I'm in my mid fifties. So it's, you know, it's not like I'm going to be able to just walk next door and get a job someplace because, you know, who wants to hire some 50 year old jackass who's going to demand twice the salary of some 30 year old with the same degree, right? That's a, that's a, that's a challenge for me in my real life. And I still have to pay my mortgage and I still have to put my kids through college and I have to do all those things. So these are, this is sort of the, the moral dilemma of dealing with these kinds of, 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 of problems. I think people who work for Facebook or Google have exactly the same kind of issues that they have to deal with in terms of making a stand about these things. But the fact that we're starting to have conversations about them is a good thing. Um, now, you know, if there's if there's one thing that I actually agree with Elizabeth Warren about, it's that that I think we start need we need to start applying antitrust laws to a lot of these companies because I do think concentrations of wealth, not just in tech companies but in general in society, are not a good thing. Um, and we recognize that throughout the entirety of our country. It's why we did away with primogenitor and why we have squatter rights and why we have antitrust laws. You know, we recognize that there's a debilitating, uh, a destabilizing element of having two large concentrations of wealth in society that, 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 that create imbalances in our structure. And we're seeing that now. And the problem is, is we're not enforcing the laws we already have in place or modifying the laws to enforce the essential spirit of what those laws were intended to do uh and that's a problem and that's a legislative problem and i think that yeah. that's also a corruption problem and, and that also guides down from it's a populist problem right because theoretically yeah. if the populace was more engaged and we were more debating at a, at a maybe golden age a idea if that's a reality i mean i think it is i think we did have a better idea. I think the citizenry of the United States used to have a different way of engaging with politics. But in any case, if we could get to that point, then we would put people in office, we would hold them to account, and then they would start functioning again. So cable television, we got a snippet, and all the internet. I don't disagree. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, you know, it's, it, there's, there's, it, well, again, that's a conversation that we need to have because it's like, you know, I recognize that there's immense value in the internet, right? I mean, holy cow, what, a, what, a, what an astonishingly, amazingly awesome, transformative technology that that has become. No doubt about it. You know, it's like, hell, I, I'm a YouTube addict, right? I mean, and it's not because I like watching stupid stuff. It's because, man, I learn a lot from that. I've learned, you know, you know how planes work and how engines function and how to change a carburetor in my snowblower and just all kinds of crap that I would never have really had the ability to learn if I just wasn't for the fact that I could go to YouTube and see a video and damn near anything. What an awesome thing that is, right? But at the same time, there's a lot of shit on that thing, man. I mean, holy cow, right? So yeah. there's 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 a there's a there's a you know there's a there's sort again it comes down to human behavior and how how do you how do you 
how do you have an educational system that that if if it does anything it 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 provides a foundation to have complex thoughts about morals and ethics i don't want education to teach people morals and ethics i want it to teach people how to critically think about the problems that life puts forth in front of you right and, and how to moral how to how to navigate moral ethical concerns around those things in order to make proper decisions and to recognize when you're incentivized to make the wrong decision and 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 that you yeah. there there may be there may be an ethical choice there about maybe it actually is ethical to make that wrong decision because there's other mitigating circumstances right i don't want my kids to be homeless so there's there's a lot higher degree of bullshit i'm willing to tolerate in my professional life than there would have been if i didn't have kids <laughs> right I think the takeaway for me, I mean, I agree education. I think the big takeaway for me from this conversation is this idea that we are not giving the population. We, we've currently set up a structure in place where people do not get the time to think. We don't have boredom. We have distraction. So, and, and you're right. The YouTube video thing is fantastic. I, I fully agree with that as well. I can learn a ton about that. But the truth is one person created the thing, you know, did the thing. And then everybody's watching that video to learn the thing. Great. That is a human condition we need. Teaching is fantastic. It's fundamental. But that one person did need to figure it out, right? They needed Mm -hmm. to spend the time and energy and the mental thought to do that. And so it is, it's that that we're not giving time for. We're not allowing every individual to spend the time necessary to think and then to potentially create or come up with a new idea so as fantastic as cable television, the internet is, it's kind of taking that from us, taking that time to create. Well, how do you incentivize people to value sussing out a difficult problem as opposed to just seeking an easy solution to it? Teaching my kids math, right? It's like, daddy, why do I have to do so many math problems? This is because you're not going to develop intuition about how math works unless you practice math. That's how it functions, Right. And, and yes, you could look up how to do it any old time, but a fundamental part of anybody's education should be a very difficult course in statistics, right? Not because you mm-hmm. need to learn how to run an OLS model. It's so that in, farther on in your life, you can figure out when you're being lied to, right? Yeah. And it's all the time. <laughs> all the time. So, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's like, it, it's just, wait, you know, it's like I don't consume a lot of news sources about defense issues because should I sit in the defense? And so much of it is 90% completely wrong, right? But yeah, okay, this is the conversation, and and you know again, and I know you're you're compressed on time here. I, I, I one of the things you know in my industry, the defense industry, that that really bothers me is 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 the fact that we we're very very capable tactically, but we're virtually incompetent operationally and strategically. And part of the reason that we have this level, and and that's both in terms of political leadership and in terms of, of, of higher level leadership that we have. And part of the reason for that is, is that we're not having conversations about national defense of the country anymore. We're having proselytization about it. We're having proclamations about it, but we're not having really deep conversations about what it means to be involved with a country like China and, and what that actually means to us in terms of our national interest and our national defense. Those conversations aren't really happening. And and you can you can Not read many of the yeah and you can read all the DC journals and so forth that are supposedly you know foreign policy journals and so forth that are supposedly and the, and God the, the analysis of it is vapid as hell 
It just is. And it's because they're not having conversations. They're all sitting in their rooms, typing out their own thoughts and, and, and perspectives. Trying to get their uh, moment of a headline, right? Their, their bite. Right. And the, and the value of the conversation is how we get ourselves into a, into a state of understanding about how we have to proceed in the world, not just a bunch of, you know, highly educated people pontificating from the comfort of their own living rooms. It really has to start happening throughout society. And, and <laughs> that's my takeaway from your conversation with Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, thank you for this conversation. So great catching up with you. And thank you for doing this with me. Oh, my, my absolute pleasure, Lyle. It's been great talking to you again. Mm-hmm.